So Matthew 28, 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this uh, wonderful text that comes uh, from you to us this morning. We ask that your spirit would uh, just uh, fill us as we hear it and hear it preached. Lord, we acknowledge that your word tells us to not let many of you become teachers, for we receive the stricter judgment, and that weighs heavily upon anybody who preaches here at Cornerstone, myself included. Uh, I pray, Father, Lord, that you would help us to listen to you, and uh, Lord, to also just examine these things to see if they be so. We pray that your spirit would help us to put these things into practice, properly motivated by your love for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. So we're going to spend some time talking about this text with it, this motif of, of kind of a team and Jesus being our coach and all-star. And I'm going to really try to move through the text itself fairly quickly because I want to leave about half of our time to do what we call a skull drill. That's what coaches do when they're trying to talk to their team about, okay, let's talk about the mental side of the game. How do we really make this happen? How do we execute this plan. And so we're going to look at the text and then we're going to try to talk about some skull drill principles. Skull drill. Did anybody ever use skull drill as a term in coaching or was that just my dad or, or me? Skull drill? All right. So there's certain principles on how do we use our noggin to put these things into, into practice. So we're going to look at this underneath four headings. The title is When They Saw Him because I really think uh, at least I want to draw attention to the fact that them seeing Jesus is a big deal here, seeing the resurrected Christ. So our first uh, heading that we want to focus on is the disciples went to see Jesus. Again, if you look at verse 16, then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed or designated for them. When they saw him, they worshiped him. We're going to focus on when they saw him. So they go to this mountain to see Jesus. You'll notice it says the 11 because who's missing? Judas is no longer there. Um, and so the 11 are mentioned. Um, and we know if we were to compare this to other passages of Scripture, and if you look in your commentaries and whatnot, you'll notice that Matthew kind of skips by the Jerusalem appearances Fast forwards to the Galilean appearance and actually just one of the Galilean appearances. Um, and so some or many commentators would say that what we're reading here is actually probably the same or it, it, it's equivalent to Christ's appearance to the 500. But by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew wants to put the emphasis on the 11. He wants to stay there. And so we are going to to stay there in our text, even though. There's probably and then right around 10 different post-resurrection appearances of Christ. This perhaps might be the eighth. In Matthew's gospel, he puts the entire focus here. And so in our text, we have the 11 who were in Jerusalem going quite a distance to Galilee. 
uh, to a mountain. So this is an isolated place that they go to. And by the way, this is a place that been appointed or designated for them. At some point, either before Jesus died or maybe after one of his resurrection appearances, uh, we know earlier in our text that he tells Mary and Martha um, to, uh, uh, or the Marys, to go and, and tell the disciples to meet him in Galilee. So there had been some previous arrangement for them to meet uh, Jesus here. And so if you, you know, you kind of wrap this together and you think about this, it's like, the disciples had already had a taste of the resurrected Christ. Obviously, they walked with Jesus when he was on the earth. Some of them saw him transfigured. Um, they had all seen Christ resurrected, but there was this taste for more of the glory of Christ. They had tasted a little bit of the glory of Christ in the transfiguration, got to see a little bit of the glory of the resurrected Christ down in Jerusalem. When Jesus says, meet me in Galilee, they're like, yes, sir, we want more of you. And so they travel up and they go to the mountain uh, looking for Jesus. And I just want to lay out at this point just to, to challenge us that there is something about seeing Christ. And for the disciples, seeing the raised Christ that compels them. You think of Zacchaeus. All Zacchaeus had to do, he goes and he climbs a tree just so he can get a look at Jesus. And then Jesus looks up at him and then his whole life is transformed. Just getting a view, just getting a, a look at Jesus is, is amazing. And, and a look at the resurrected Christ. Like, uh, you know, so we think about them just being impacted by Christ and the power of him being raised from the dead. And as it impacted them, we also interface with Christ today through the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus told his disciples early in the ministry that it's actually good that I go away because if I don't go away, I'm not going to be able to send the spirit. But if I do go away, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to what? He's going to guide you into all truth. And he's going to speak of all these things concerning me. So from Christ's perspective, it's actually good for us to get a view of Jesus through the Holy Spirit in his word. And so this morning, while the disciples went to see the resurrected Christ eyeball to eyeball, we get to see the resurrected Christ eyeball to eyeball through his word. And Jesus actually says, that's good. That's better. In fact, it's a good thing. And we can say with that great theologian, Trip Lee, when you're at your all time low, don't forget the power that he already showed. He was raised from the dead and when we're feeling at our all-time low and feeling, is there any power for me? Is there, we just get a look at Jesus, get a look at Christ through his word as we're filled with the spirit. But what do they do after they get a look at Jesus is they worship him. Secondly, our second heading is the disciples worship Jesus. So you look down at verse 17, they saw him and they worshiped him. But some... Doubted. The word here, worshipped, is the Greek word proskuneo, which the idea is, is they bowed low before him. They probably literally got down and bowed before him and worshipped him. We see that same concept happens in verse 9, uh, that the, the ladies who had seen the resurrected Christ, they bowed down and worshipped him. In fact, this word worship gets used all throughout the book of Matthew, where you keep seeing people worship Jesus, chapter 14, after Jesus walks on the water. 
Um, you actually have the devil saying to Jesus, bow down and proskuneo me, worship me, and I'll give you all these kingdoms. Jesus says, you shall worship no one except the Lord your God. Him only shall you serve, which tells us Jesus understands that you should only proskuneo, you should only worship God. And yet the disciples here, proskuneo, they worship Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say, hey, don't do this. When people worship just angels in the New Testament, what do they universally do? The angel says, don't, don't do that, don't worship me. When John bows down before an angel in the book of Revelation, he says, don't proskuneo me, don't worship me. But when Jesus gets proskuneoed, when he gets worshiped, bowed down to, he receives it. So what does that tell us? He's God. He's raised. They see the raised Christ. They're proskuneoing. They're worshiping Christ. And so it is absolutely appropriate for us to worship uh, the risen Christ. And yet, the text tells us that even in their worship, some doubted. Some doubted, which is this, this is kind of hard to imagine. What is exactly Matthew talking about? That they're looking at the resurrected Christ. They've already met him in Jerusalem a few different times. What is this doubt all about? It could be that Matthew is conflating the stories, putting all of the stories together and just kind of making kind of a a backward glance at, at Thomas. That's a possibility. But the fact that he says some indicates that it wasn't just Thomas, but there are others as well amongst the 11 uh, that are also having some sense of doubts. And one of the things this, this does tell us is that seeing isn't always believing. They do see Christ. They see the resurrected Christ. And yet there's still something in their hearts where there's doubts that are stirring. And we see this all over the Bible, right? Jezebel heard and saw all of the work that God had done through Elijah, and yet she wanted to kill him, right? Uh, Pharaoh saw all of the miracles that had been done by Yahweh in behalf of Israel, and yet he wanted to chase him into the Red Sea. Uh, Jeroboam had his, his hand turned to leprous, leprous, and uh, when he pointed at the man of God, and yet the man of God cried out and healed him, and he still uh, did not believe. Jeroboam went on to be one of the worst kings in Israel. And so just because you see a miracle like Lazarus being raised from the dead, for instance, there's no guarantee that people aren't going to want to kill Jesus right afterwards. Uh, there has to be a movement of the spirit. But let's let's talk about what's this this doubt thing about that they these uh, these disciples come and there's there's some some sort of of doubt it, it kind of begs the question what what would Jesus's response be to worshipers that come to him in doubt I don't know what would be your response if, if you're in Christ's shoes and here you are you've already raised from the dead you've done all of these miracles the disciples have walked with you you've appeared to them several different times already and yet there's some indication that the very 11 that you discipled are still kind of wrestling with some doubts I don't know if I was Jesus, I think I would be a little ticked off and back away from the situation. Be like, what do I got to do for you guys? Right? I'm right here. Uh, but notice what Jesus does. And that takes us to our third heading. And that is Jesus draws near to the, to the disciples. The Lord always does pretty much the opposite of what I would do uh, right in my flesh is here. They are doubting. And then what does he do? It says right there. In verse 18, and Jesus came, uh, came near. Some translations say came up. Um, the literal idea is that he drew near to them. 
So even these disciples that worship him in doubt, Jesus responds by drawing near to them. And this is this is just amazing. It's like uh, you know, it kind of echoes that principle that you see in James. It's draw draw nigh to God, and He will what? Draw near to you. The disciples left Jerusalem, traveled up to Galilee. They go to an isolated place. They're drawing near to the Lord. There's still doubts in their hearts. Whatever those are, they're struggling. And Jesus draws near to them in spite. So God moves towards us. You know, what's interesting to me is, is the disciples, they do take this initiative. They do go to meet with Jesus and keep their appointment that had been previously established. Uh, but what I've noticed is just the kindness of the Lord. I know in my own life, that sometimes when we just take a little tiny baby step towards him, he draws near to us. Uh, sometimes my pride in my life has been this big. I've got pride this big, but then the Holy Spirit grants me this much humility, and the Lord just jumps on that. He just jumps towards me um, when I humble myself just a little bit. Um, and so the Lord draws near uh, to them as Matthew keeps the spotlight on the 11. So they worship Jesus, they, but they worship in doubts. Uh, maybe they're saying, is this really Jesus? Maybe they're wondering, um, how close should they get to the resurrected Christ? Maybe they're wondering, what's their relationship really going to be like with Jesus now that he's raised? Um, but he responds by coming closer to them, not by drawing away from them. He speaks their doubts. And as Pastor Milton said in our, our Easter sermon when he was going through this uh, very material, he says, do not stay away from Jesus if you are doubting. True worship is not just coming to Jesus with your faith, but it's coming to him with your doubts. Allow Jesus to address those doubts. Jesus draws near to his disciples in grace, even in their doubt. Isn't the Lord so good? Um, just the way that he will come and still interface with us in the midst of our weakness. And this takes us to our fourth heading, and that is Jesus spoke to the disciples. So um, they see him, uh, they, they come and worship him, even bring in their doubts to him. He does not withhold himself, he gives himself to them. But not just that, he speaks to them. He speaks to them. And the idea of Christ speaking to him, let's just look again down there at verse 18. Jesus came and spoke to them. Before we talk about the content of what he actually spoke to them, I wonder if we just focus on the word spoke. Just when Jesus shows up on scenes all throughout the New Testament, when he just speaks, things happen. You ever notice that? Even like demons, he's about ready to cast out some demons, and they say, well, Jesus... Uh, um, we don't really want to be just thrown out of this person. Could you throw us into the pigs, the swine? And he just says, go. That's all he says, right? Jesus is walking on the water one night, and, and he's out there, and they finally recognize that it's not a ghost, it's Jesus. And Peter has the gumption to say, Lord, if you command me to come out on the water, I'll do it. What does Jesus say? Come. That's all he has to say. He just says, come, and then boom, Peter is walking on the water. Um, he says to Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, come forth. And he gets out of the grave. In the Old Testament, very beginning of Genesis, we see God saying, let there be light. And what happened? 
and there was light. God just wills things into being. He has that kind of power, and Jesus has that kind of power. Um, And so when the disciples come and they're bowing and then he begins to speak, I can just imagine the disposition. They probably have the disposition of little Samuel that's just saying, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And so we want to come to the Lord and have that kind of disposition too. Lord, what do you have for me? We're reading through Daniel right now. And a lot of you guys probably have gone through Daniel already and, and coming back through the, the commentary. But one of my favorite parts of Daniel is in chapter 10 where Gabriel shows up on the scene. And you guys probably remember that he's there. You know, there's this big epiphany and it's a little bit confusing. On Are we seeing a pre-incarnate view of Christ? And then are we seeing an angel? And when is it going back and forth? And, uh, and Daniel kind of gets left alone for a while and, and he's uh, shaken in his boots. But there's a couple different places. One in verse 11 of chapter 10 where we see, Oh, Daniel, man, greatly beloved. But then he still stands trembling. But then when you look down at verse 18... Then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly loved, fear not. Uh, Peace be to you. Uh, Be strong. Yes, be strong. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. This is probably Gabriel is, I think, what would be my best guess based on what a lot of the commentators are saying. Well, it's kind of confusing. But here, Gabriel, let's just assume it's him. He comes, he reminds Daniel that he's greatly beloved. Daniel is just shaken in his boots. He says, you're greatly beloved. Don't fear. And he begins to speak to him. He just says, be strong, be strong. What happens to Daniel? He gets strong. And then he says, keep speaking to me. So if this is what happens when the Lord is speaking through an angel like Gabriel, what's happening when God and the Spirit and and Christ are all working together? Jesus Christ is just speaking to the disciples. Just think about that for a second. As we move into this declaration and this command and this promise, that the things that are coming out of Jesus' mouth, these are not just wishes. These are decrees. Jesus speaks forth reality. He gets what he wants. And so let's look at these these items together as he makes, first of all, a declaration in verse 18. So he speaks. What does he say to these disciples who came to him worshiping in doubt? They kept their appointment, and yet Jesus draws near to them and speaks and says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This is his declaration. Think about this. All authority. Not some authority, all authority. Um, and, and, and what are the realms of this authority? Well, it's in heaven. This would speak to all principalities. He's got authority over demons. He's got authority over angels. Um, no demon or angel has any authority over him. Angels worship him. Demons bow down. He tells demons go and they go. He has absolute all Authority. Um, one of my favorite theological beat songs um, is a song called Angels uh, by a guy named Flame. So I don't know, I, I like preaching to a beat, um, otherwise known as Christian rap. Um, I know that's not a style that everybody likes, 
but there's something about preaching and then putting a beat to it that kind of helps me remember what's going on. Um, but there's this one song that's called Angels, and the basic concept of the song is all you people who have all this money and think that you're totally cool without the Lord and you're just off doing your thing and you think everybody, you think you're the man. Well, next time you have angels worshiping you, we'll think you are the man. Jesus is the man. And I just love listening to that song. And I, whenever I go out witnessing, it's one of the songs I listen to just to remind me that Jesus is the man. There's nobody else that I'm going to talk to that is the man. The angels aren't bowing down to anybody else except for Jesus Christ. So I'm going to go and be reminded that he's the man. He has authority over all principalities, uh, so in heaven, but also on earth. That means he's got control over kings, rulers, your neighbor next door, your children, your parents. He's got authority over you in your own heart. He has authority over the fear in your heart. He has authority over the doubts in your heart. He has the authority over the guilt in your heart. He has all authority And notice that it's been passive voice given to him. This speaks to the relationship between father and son. And then we'll talk about the spirit here momentarily. But this authority has been given to him by his father. Remember a few months ago, we were preaching through John 17. And Jesus says, as you, father, have given him, that's he's talking to himself, you've given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. This has become one of my regular prayers. Lord, you have given authority. Father, you've given authority to your son to give over all flesh, to give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And so, Lord, just guide us to the people that you have given to your son. And your son, by the way, has authority over all flesh. That's and this is we're not just whistling in the air, right? These are realities that Jesus is telling us about. And we, when we look at the book of Acts, and Pastor Carlos did a great job taking us through some of these narratives in Acts, we see that all that were appointed to eternal life believe the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. All that the Father has given to me, John 6, will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I'll no wise cast out. Nobody come to, uh, to me unless the Father, what? Draws him. This is all authority. He has authority over all. Um, So Jesus um, can always get to you wherever you are at. Um, He has an agenda that will be fulfilled throughout the ages. This is a guaranteed total victory. No one can stop him from his caring intentions. And what a how it's awesome to play for a coach like that, right? You're playing for a, a coach who knows all things, has authority over all things, and he's also on your team. He's the all-star player. It's like we can't lose. This this is just amazing, amazing stuff. And then not just that, but he's given a command. And so what is that command? We'll look at this quickly. Verse 19, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, He gives this command on the basis of the authority that's been granted to him by his father. And this is an authority, by the way, that he's going to tell his disciples later that he's given them through the Holy Spirit, Acts 1.8. And the main kernel of the command is to go out and make disciples, go out and make followers or learners of Jesus Christ. 
In order to make disciples, we find out later in the book of Acts and Romans that we need to go out and preach. We've got to go out and share the word so that people will hear and then they'll believe, which involves sending people. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Uh, but that command to make disciples bleeds out into the other um, verbal phrases that we have in the rest of the verse. Uh, I don't want to get overly grammatical here, but you have three different participles there. Go and uh, baptizing and teaching. And um, by the way, all of in Greek, all of those participles take on the characteristic of the main command. So we can say make disciples, but there's also a command to go and a command to baptize and a command to teach. And so we go, God uh, commands us to go make disciples by first of all going. That implies the disciples are going to go out and go from their location. It also implies they're going to be sent. And we're going to find that out. You find that out later in the in the plan as, as uh, the New Testament unfolds. They're going to preach. They're going to make followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Part of that's going to involve baptism. Baptism involves believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. It involves repenting of sin, having a change of mind about our sin. And by the way, they're being baptized in the name singular, right, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, plural. So we have one God, three persons. The Trinity is right here in this command. Teaching them. So this will be part of the sanctification process. Teaching them to observe uh, we would obs- we're about ready to observe Fourth of July, right? You observe a holiday. What does that mean? We're going to do certain things on a holiday. You observe it, and so we're to observe all things that I have commanded you. And so we're supposed to teach and observe really everything else that Christ has commanded us in the Bible, both Old and New Testament. So really, what it comes down to is the mission of the church is to go out and create followers of all nations, not just Jews, but every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's exactly what we see the church does. That's why we're believers in this room. Do we have any uh, Jewish brothers in the church? Anybody Jewish that's a believer and you're also Jewish? Okay, so you guys are all product of the gospel going out to pagan lands. We're all a bunch of former pagans, right? We weren't Jews. The Jews went out and began to preach the gospel to the various nations. My ancestors were probably over in Europe cutting themselves, painting themselves, and bowing down to Thor, right? And the gospel came to my, my uh, relatives in Europe, and then we began to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we are today, 2,000 years later, believing in Jesus Christ, because guess what? When Jesus spoke, things happened. And we're here because things happen when Jesus speaks. He said, make disciples. Guess what? It's happened. And we're here. And so the last thing that we'll say here, as far as Jesus speaking, is that he ends this, this by giving a promise. There's a promise here where Jesus says, Lo, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He says, behold, he says, the idea is what I'm about to say to you is really important and it is totally true. No doubt you can take it to the bank. It's a guarantee beyond a shadow of a doubt. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. I am present tense. This extends what he's saying to the church of all ages, not just to the 11. I am right there with you. Just like Emmanuel is God with us. He's saying, I am right there with you. Always, there will never be a time when I'm not with you. Always, 
even to the end of the age, all the way up to the end of, the hu- of this stage of human history, I will be there. And by the way, when it gets to the end, we fast forward to Revelation. We have worshipers from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation group. Amen. Always with you. He is with us through the Holy Spirit every single day. It's his presence and his friendship that transforms us from day to day. So this is the, the overall, some of the parting words that Jesus gives to these 11. These 11 who had scattered, who had ran away from Christ. He now gathers them back up, shows himself raised, the power of the resurrection. He draws near to them in their doubts. And uh, they keep their appointment. He draws near to them. They worship him. On the other side of seeing him and worshiping him, he speaks to them and doesn't just give suggestions. He decrees things in their life and then guarantees his presence with them throughout their lives, not just their lives, but throughout lives of those that are on this team called the saints. So this is this is kind of the, the big mission, right? Um, and, and I just want you to note before we move into our skull drill that the mission here and the way Christ paints it, it's not like you guys better do this. And if you don't, boy, sorry for you. And um, and you get no sense that there's any doubt in Christ's voice. There's no sense that he's just kicking shins, trying to motivate them out of guilt. Everything that is flowing from Jesus is love it's the love of christ second corinthians five fourteen. it's the love of christ that compels us realizing that when one died he died for all and now we no longer live for ourselves but for him who died for us what gives me the power what gives you the power to go out and do the things that the lord's calling us to do i'll tell you what gives me the power that what gives me the power is when i start to really recognize the spirit that just like Daniel is called the beloved of the Lord, that I'm the beloved of the Lord. Ephesians 5, that he calls me a beloved child of the Lord. And that when I start to realize that, you know what? Jesus is the ultimate coach. He blesses me with his presence. He's the all-star of the team. And really, does Jesus really need me on the team? Let's think about this for a second. Does he need me? I mean, I think I was born in 1968. And last I checked, Jesus did pretty well up until 1967. He was doing very, very well. And then I was born in 1968. And I just don't think that Jesus looked down on planet Earth and said, I am so glad we got to 1968. We at least I at least got the kingdom to Mike. Now we can really get on the move. Jesus doesn't need me at all. You know, he is the one who began this work. He will complete it. He's the one that's provided the robe. All of you that are believers in here, you are dressed in the righteousness of Christ. And guess what? I don't add one single thread to your robe. And you don't add a a single thread to my robe. What we do for each other is we point each other to Jesus. We all rally together and say, let's go see Jesus. Let's go worship Jesus. Let's hear from Jesus. Let's let's be excited about the fact that when he speaks, things happen. And by the way, he is with us to the end of the age. I want to challenge you at some point to go look up a Spurgeon sermon called Love at Leisure. 
C.H. Spurgeon has this amazing message where he exposits Mary's worship of Christ when he's teaching in, in Martha's house. And it's just such a motivational sermon where he just basically argues that your chief duty, your number one duty is to leisure yourself in Christ and his love. And that's what will power you to do things on his team. And it seems so counterintuitive, but when you really think about it, it's it's who are the people that we've really enjoyed playing for or or serving in our lives? Aren't isn't it those people that end up loving us and make us really feel confident in ourselves because they're they see something in us and they speak truth to us and they give us a confidence. And and I know when we played for that Yankees team, when we got that little kid from Texas, all of a sudden it was like, man, we're unstoppable. This guy is a crazy man. He's an amazing pitcher. We've got Jesus as our all-star, and we've got Jesus as our coach, and he's already told us the outcome of the game. And so we can go out in confidence because the love of Christ compels us. So let's take a few minutes to do what I'm going to call skull drill for the Saints. You guys all play for a team called the Saints. Now, maybe you don't like the NFL Saints. That's okay. We're not talking about that. On the back of your insert, you'll have the skull drill here. What I want to do is, is kind of lay out some suggestions on how we can put what we've just heard into practice. Um, making disciples, or what a lot of times we call the Great Commission, is a team sport. When I was a younger Christian, you know, I, part of my testimony is, is as soon as the Lord saved me, I just had this there was this thing inside of me where I wanted to share that with other people. And it wasn't like I was this natural born leader. It's just like I got saved. And then all of a sudden I wanted to tell people. And then I start telling people. And but there was lots of different ways that I got motivated. And I don't blame any of my teachers. I think it really came internally from me is a lot of times I was motivated out of guilt. I was motivated from a lot of different things. And it's you know, motivation is a complicated thing, even in the pages of Scripture, because there's a lot of different things that the Lord uses to motivate us. But the one fuel that really gives us power is the gospel. Understanding Christ's unconditional love for us through his death, burial, and resurrection, ascension, and praying for us, that there's nothing that we really add to our own righteousness. Uh, we, we're not trying out anymore for the team. If you believed in Jesus Christ, you're already on the team. You've won the trial because Jesus won the trial for you. That's the gospel that frees us up to go out and do things for him without a fear that we're going to be rejected because we fall short. OK, <clears throat> at the same time, while that's the fuel that goes in the tank, God does at times use guilt and other things to jumpstart the battery. Right. He'll use fear. He'll use guilt. There's a lot of things um, that this little alarm will go off sometimes on our dashboard or sometimes there, you need a little, zzz, you know, to kind of get that battery rolling. But, you know, jump starts don't put fuel in the tank, right? Bells and whistles in your dashboard don't put fuel in the tank. What puts fuel in the tank is understanding that you are beloved of Jesus Christ. That's what put, puts fuel in the tank. So I want, I want you guys to kind of take this in that kind of light. I, the theme of everything that I'm going to talk about is the love of Christ compels us. It's the love of Christ that constrains us, 2 Corinthians 5.14. The love of Christ seizes us. And not our love for Christ, but his love for us. We love him because what? He first loved us. So let's talk about some of these skull drill, skull drill things. And then we're hoping that you guys in your small groups or 
maybe in your family time, that you guys can take this further. The first thing I want to say is that you have to attend to yourself first. You have to attend to yourself first. Guess what? I have absolutely nothing I can offer you as a pastor. I have nothing I can offer my wife as a husband. I have nothing to offer my kids as a dad other than Jesus Christ and what the Lord is doing in my life through the Holy Spirit. I have a lot of bad things I can lay out for you guys. And I have a lot of sin that I can lay out for my family. But the one thing that I can do that is good for them is what Jesus Christ is doing in my life. But if he's not doing it in my life first, I have nothing to give. But the cool thing is, is God's in the business of doing things in my life so that I can have something to give. And then that gives me joy. Right. First Timothy four. You guys, a lot of you know this passage till I come. He says to Timothy, give attention to reading, exhortation, doctrine, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine, the gospel, continue in them for in doing so you will save both yourself and those who hear you. So how is it that we grow in this salvation, the sanctification aspect of the doctrine of salvation is it has to happen for us first. I need to give my attention to myself. I need to fill up my tank on the love of Christ, pursue him. And as I get filled up, then now I've got something to offer. I can help in your salvation and your sanctification with my kids, my wife and so on and so forth. We've talked about this before. But it's it's like the age old thing when you go to fly, get on an airplane flight. And what do they do? They run through all of those instructions and they always tear, tell parents, with the little kids, you got to put the mask wear on yourself first. Then you won't pass out. Now you can help your kids. Right. I've got to be drinking. I've got to be breathing in the gospel for me. I've got to get happy in Jesus for me. God is a happy God in himself. He delights in himself. And when I pursue him through his word and through prayer and I'm after him as hard as I can by his grace, then I get my heart filled up and now I've got something to offer. If my heart gets plugged up, I really don't I I don't have the wherewithal to help you or help anybody else. But the cool thing is, is God's just about every one of these skull drill concepts that we're going to mention if you feel like, man, I'm not um, I'm not pursuing him the way I should. I'm not getting my heart filled up. Guess what the answer is? Just cry out to the Lord and say, help me, Lord. I I'm not in your word the way I should. And I'm feeling that my heart is clogged up. Would you help me? And guess what? God loves prayers like that. Right. He loves it when we come to him and say, Lord, I need help. I need wisdom. I'm having trouble with my prayer life right now. I, I can't get into the word right now. I'm really struggling. Can you help me? Guess what? God's not like, you should help yourself, man. What are you t- coming to me for? Help yourself. No, no. He loves to answer prayers like that. So that's one thing. The other, I think, uh, skull draw item I would encourage you with, this bleeds out of the first one. If you don't do any of them, just do the first one. If you don't remember anything about this sermon, you forget absolutely everything. Just remember this. The love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us. It's Christ's love for you that fills up your fuel tank to give you energy to do anything else. Make that domino fall first. If you do one thing, sit at the feet of Jesus until you know he loves you through the cross and the resurrection. 
sit at the feet of Jesus. If everything else falls apart, I won't tell you all the things I'm not getting done right now because it's a, it's a big list. But if I can get up and sit at the feet of Jesus and know that he loves me, that's the first domino. And when that domino falls, other things will start to fall. Uh, prayer is a big one. So and that's actually that, that, that bleeds into this as we call upon the Lord. If you look at a passage like Matthew 9, where Jesus is looking at the multitudes, he's moved with compassion, knowing that they're weary. And uh, he says in verse 37, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. So you lazy disciples, you guys need to get out there and work on the harvest and stop with all the nonsense, you lazy sheep. Is that what he says? No, he says, therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then the very next chapter, guess who goes out? It's the disciples, right? But he just comes to them very caringly and gently and says, pray, just pray. You guys can do the same thing. You know, we can just be praying for your family, praying for your unsafe family members, praying for the community, praying for your spouse. Um, I can barely change. I, I don't have the wherewithal to change myself on a daily basis, let alone my own family, let alone you. Right. Um, I've, I've got to cry out to the Lord every day for just incremental changes in my own heart. And you guys have known us long enough. Milton's been here for 25 years. I've been here 20 years Guess what? A lot of you guys know me well enough where the cat's out of the bag, right? <laughs> Pastor Mike, you are not a perfect guy, right? Uh, but Lord willing, you're seeing our progress. And one of the blessings of being in the same church for 20, 25 years is I've got to get love from you. Is the Lord Jesus Christ, this church could have thrown me under the bus a long time ago, right? But you guys came along and have shown me the love of Jesus Christ and that I am beloved. And I know I'm beloved partially because of you. And that's just a great blessing to me. And so I come and I and we pray, we cry out to the Lord and he says, OK, I'm going to answer those prayers. Come to me and I will I'll send you out. We also adorn the gospel as part of how we fulfill this this mission that seems so so daunting. But we're with our coach and our all star player is we adorn the gospel. Titus 2.10, after listing a number of different roles that, that people play in their families and in their community, he says uh, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. And when this, in this context and other contexts, what he's talking about is adorning our, the gospel with a holy life and good gospel choices. Okay, this doesn't mean that you're living a life of perfection. What this does mean if there's a new controlling element, Christ loves you, and now your heart is turned to serve him. You no longer want to live for yourself, but you want to serve him. And now it's like we begin to view other people, not just according to the flesh, but now we're beginning to view them as eternal souls going one way or the other. And it starts to influence our decisions. We want to adorn the gospel with our lives. And the Holy Spirit begins to move in our hearts to say, yeah, let's not do that anymore. Right? Let's try this. This is going to help your gospel witness. That's probably not going to help your gospel witness. And when you look at the Apostle Paul, that's, that seems to be a controlling element for him. When you look so many of the passages that he writes about, it's like what helps make his decision is whether it's going to give him more or less opportunities for the gospel. Are people going to be more open to hearing about Christ or less open? Are people going to shove Christ away if I do this or are they going to want to welcome Christ in and that becomes a controlling element for him and that's actually an element that will help us make very 
a lot of our choices that kind of hit those gray areas, like should I do this or should I do that? Well, does it adorn the gospel? Does it adorn the gospel? And then you're not doing it out of legalism and guilt and then starting to judge other people about it. You're doing it because the Spirit is moving upon your heart because you're loved and filled up by Christ and you want to love other people too. Is this making a little bit of sense? You talk about it in your care groups. Um, <clears throat> this is what C.H. Spurgeon says about this part of our skull drill, although he didn't use the word skull drill. He says, more than all, keep up a continual fire on the enemy by a holy life. Nothing will more reprove sin than your holiness. If you cannot tell the stick it is crooked, you can prove it to be so by laying a straight one side by side with it. So put your purity before the impure and they will be effectually uh, reproved. It's a good image. Um, sometimes people just they don't want to hear the gospel. But if we'll just very graciously live besides beside people in a way that honors the gospel, it, it can have an impact. The Lord can use it. Let's talk about a fourth skull drill point. That is love your family. Love your family. First Timothy 5.8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his own house or his own, and especially those of his own household, he is denied the faith. That means denied the gospel and is worse than the unbeliever. You have to be very, very careful that sometimes we hear these words of Christ about going out and make disciples. We're very exercised about the Great Commission. Sometimes we interpret the Great Commission as being just going out there to all the strangers in my life while the people at home are being neglected. That's not, I want to propose to you, that's not what Jesus meant by the Great Commission. Uh, we need to give attention to ourselves. We also need to give attention to our families. And you don't need to feel guilty about giving attention to your family, by the way. Don't feel guilty if you're at home discipling your own children and you weren't able to go on that, that witnessing trip or you know, Team Philippines or this or that. That's great that, you know, there's some of us that are going to Team Philippines, but that does not in any way minimize what you're doing at home with your grandbabies. Uh, if anything, that's probably a greater work. I'll, I'll just be honest with you. Like for me, I, I, do, um, I do like going out and talking to strangers and, and doing, uh, you know, some evangelism out and about. Um, but I am much less intimidated to go out and talk to strangers than I am to talk to people uh, that I know really well, even in my extended family. If you gave me a choice between go over here and preach to a bunch of strangers or go talk to that particular individual in your family that knows you really well, I'd be like, eh, I'm going to go to the strangers. <laughs> and, uh, and so just being home, right, with your own kids and doing the tough work in the trenches with those little hearts is, is so important. One of the things I... This is part of my daily prayer. Um, this is something that pops up on my prayer list probably about three times a week. <clears throat> I'll say this to myself is every time I love my wife, I am preaching the gospel. When in private, I am preaching it to her, myself, the angels, the demons and the devil himself. When in public, I extend the gospel preaching to my children, my church and to the world. The call to love my wife is the first and the greatest, the most strategic plan of evangelism Christ has for me as a married man on planet Earth while my wife and, uh, and I live on it. And I really believe that, um, that I am called to give the gospel to my wife first. And I'm not saying that I have always practiced this uh, the way that I should. I, honestly, I would say within the past two years, the Lord has been doing a work to get me to doing this in a much better way than I did the first 20-something years of my marriage. 
although with some ups and downs. I could tell you some stories earlier in our marriage where I was running out doing some stuff that was pretty radical for Jesus. Meanwhile, I've got a hurting wife at home, right? Um, by God's grace, he began to do a work in me, open up my eyes and remove some cataracts. And, uh, and people at this church, including our elders, love me through it. And, um, and so I'm beginning to see the, the proper priorities. Uh, there's times where I just have to say no to certain things so I can just do what I'm supposed to do with my own family first. Does this make sense? Um, and I'll, I'll be honest with you. Um, I, I've associated with a lot of people that I would say are gifted evangelists. I'm not a gifted evangelist, but I know a lot of people that go out and do a lot of evangelism. And what's kind of odd to me is a lot of people that I know that are really big into evangelism, um, there's this weird kind of characteristic where a lot of them have very diff- they have problems at home, particularly with their wife, and, uh, and sometimes there's neglect going on there. And unfortunately, a lot of the people I've associated with that are really into evangelism are some of the most arrogant people I've ever met. And I don't, I don't know if that's just, but there's a, a, an attack of the devil on evangelism, um, or is there something that happens where people begin to really fill up with pride because they feel like they're doing the true work of the ministry? I'm not sure why that happens, uh, but it's something that all of us have to guard our hearts with. Paul is very interesting the way that he speaks about this topic, and uh, I believe it's 1 Corinthians 9 when he says, if I'm out sharing the gospel, what what arrogance is there for me? And the basic idea of what he says there is because I didn't volunteer for this thing. I got drafted. If I volunteered, then, yeah, I get a reward and I can be proud. But God drafted me into his army, so to speak. And so what pride is there if I'm just out doing my job? And so when we do go out and evangelize and we participate in ministry, and we're making disciples. And if you're doing so in a public way and someone else is doing it in a, in a private way, guess what? There is no cause for arrogance whatsoever. There just isn't. Um, and we want to give attention to our homes first. A couple of final things. Love your church. Love your church. 1 John 4.20, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. He does not uh, love his brother whom he has seen. How can he love God whom he's not seen? I believe that this is in the context of loving brothers in Christ. You have other passages, Hebrews 10.24, Let us consider how to stir up one another. And, uh, and not forsaking the assembling of ourselves. Similar principle here is, is, is making disciples, teaching them to observe all things. Um, what good is it going to do if all of our pastoral staff is running out every week, bringing the gospel to the next set of unbelievers, and then we neglect the sheep to fend for themselves? That's not fulfilling the Great Commission we need to be involved in the sheep's life as well and, and, and minister to them and bring them along with us that we're all learning about uh, the love of Christ. Uh, again, some of my evangelist folks that I've associated with uh, over the years, it's, it's, it's kind of befuddling to me how many evangelists like to trash the church and trash the local church. And start talking about how the, the local church really isn't doing its job. And the local church needs to get out there and do the work of the ministry. And they have no idea the things that are happening in the local church. Many times behind the scenes in counseling offices and in homes and in so on and so forth. That are the great commission. And yeah, they might be off preaching you know, at the, uh, at the train station or UCR or something like that. And they think that's the work of the ministry. Um, but you know what? 
Jesus is into his body. He loves his bride. One of the things I've got to be very careful of, and I just exhort all of us, is Jesus died for his bride. He loves his bride. Yes, the church has problems. We're here, a bunch of broken people. But when you hear somebody start trashing the church, I would just encourage you to lovingly encourage them not to trash the bride of Christ. Because Jesus loves his bride. And he loves his broken bride. And he loves his bride when they doubt, when they have all kinds of problems. And so anytime you hear anybody trying to trash the local church, uh, be very wary of that kind of ministry. Um, and so that would take me into just uh, a couple things I want to mention. You know, the work that the Lord has done in my heart here at Cornerstone since I've been here since 1993, I just have to be honest with you, it's, it's because of you guys. There are certain things that are popping in my life because of specific people in this church. And, and when I look, you know, I have a, a, a privilege that not every, every one of you guys has, uh, and our, our pastoral staff has this privilege, is, is we get to read these prayer requests that you write and pray over and see some of these answers. Sometimes we're in counseling rooms with you guys and seeing some amazing stuff that will never see the light of day because of confidentiality issues. And, and, but it's just amazing. Um, and then I stand up here sometimes leading worship and I look out and I see faces and I just see story after story of, of God's grace in your life. And it's overwhelming to me sometimes to just see the grace that's all around this room and not just the, the work that God's done in you through me or the pastors, but but what the work that, that the Lord has done from you to me and to our pastoral staff. It's, it's just amazing. I want to just run through a couple of these, these stories. I'm not going to take very much time on these at all, but just to give you a little bit of an idea, you know, we've got like uh, uh, one of our care groups is, is initiated uh, uh, UCR evangelism outreach that I'll talk about here in a second. The, the Festival of Treats, that was a product of our McCullough's that got that rolling, that's rolling to this day. We've got our uh, people who are constantly inviting unbelievers to the church here and pointing them to our church website. Flyers, thousands of flyers that go out into our community. Um, we've got um, medical individuals in our church that are, that are doing evangelism every Friday, training other medical personnel to go and share the gospel with people that are in need. We've got people who are in charge of our evangelism team. We've got many of you that, you know, we're up here preaching the gospel and you're like the hunting dogs that are going out afterwards to go round people up. Um, we've got people who have written tracts. They're doing door-to-door evangelism, Easter, Christmas outreach. We've got the Broken Man Band. I don't know how many people of you guys have heard them, that they go around and play in the community for veterans and share the gospel. We've got one care group that established the path of life and, and the outreach over here to the homeless and, and, and turkeys that are being collected and passed out to the community. Also, outreach that's being done to those who have aged out of the, of the foster care system. We have many people in this church who have adopted children and have brought children and put the gospel very much on display. We have care groups that are going down into Mexico, down below Ensenada, and doing amazing ministry. This care group could basically start their own little medical dental hospital all themselves, and they're out there ministering. We've got all of our 13 missionaries that are out all over the world, uh, including Team Philippines. Um, some of the testimonies that you guys have heard here, our Sunday school class, I gave out a challenge not too awful long ago to our Sunday school class of just, 
hey, here's some stuff. Think about setting a goal. And if anybody wants, wants me to come help you evangelize, and I had several people respond to that and say, hey, teach me how to go out and share the gospel. Um, I'll talk here in a second about something that Pastor Milton and, and Don are doing. Pastor Carlos and Marcy with the counseling ministry is absolutely insane the way that that's taking off and, and the way that they cooperate with Alvin and Kim Davis. Alvin, when he's traveling around with the Mariners and sharing the gospel, the Kumamotos and the Kaufmans, uh, the way that they're reaching out to youth and using hospitality, um, the Mario and Kelly with their neighbors and, and the outreach that they're having via counseling. There's this, I could, the list could just go on and on. The Jones Care Group with uh, what they're doing in Arizona and some of the training that's going there, some of the stuff that's happened down with New Generation Boys Home, Fairmont Park Outreach. And this is just the tip of the iceberg, folks, that's going on here. And, and we hear your guys' prayer requests, and we're praying for those on a, on a weekly basis. And to be honest with you, sometimes it's quite overwhelming to see the love of the of Christ that is just bubbling forth from this body. Uh, it just overwhelms us at times. And so we want to just encourage you lastly to get to, to excel, ex, excel still more. Get on the lookout for those that are out there. Pastor Carlos preached a message on Acts 18 about how Jesus appeared to Paul and said, there are many individuals in Corinth and, and I'm going to protect you. You just go out and do the preaching. I just want to propose to you, and you guys know this, there are people all over the Inland Empire that are Christ's. They just might not know it yet. And we just need to go out and just kind of go find them, right? And, and guess what? You're not going by yourself. When we go out to find them, just like uh, John Gill says, uh, we've got Christ going with us. Towards these, Christ's heart always is, John Gill says. His eye is upon them, and he knows them and where they are, and therefore he will look them up and find them out. And they shall be brought to believe in him and shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And for the sake of these, in order to select and separate them from the rest, is the gospel preached and continued until they are brought in. We're not doing something that Christ isn't already doing through the Holy Spirit. We just get to go out and participate. One of the things that Pastor Milton and Donna do, as you guys heard about a couple weeks, is they've just been walking around their neighborhood and just saying, Lord, guide us to a neighbor. And this is Milton's updated list of neighbors that he's gotten to know in his neighborhood of 133 houses, just going around and just saying, Lord, just allow us to get to know our neighbors and make some contact. And by one of those contacts, he was able to preach the gospel at a funeral just last week. And that's all coming because of your guys' prayers as well. One of the things I've been doing with uh, one of my kids, uh, Samuel, is geocaching with Jesus. I don't know if anybody knows what geocaching is. Anybody know what that is? Anybody ever do that? Okay, so there's a few geocachers. I, I see that hand. All right. <laughs> so it's just, it's just this worldwide kind of treasure hunt. And so this is my app. The yellows are what we found. The greens are what's unfound. And uh, as I was just teaching through Sunday school one day, I just started seeing, man, this is kind of like geocaching. It's like there are people in our community that need Christ and they are there just waiting to be found. And so we just need to go out and find who they are. Steve Smith, an amazing evangelist in Indonesia, says, find the people that Holy Spirit is attacking. Just they're there. The Holy Spirit is in the business of convicting the world of sin, righteousness and judgment. 
And so we can go and don't be discouraged and, and think just looking on the outward that you have to just go up to certain types of people. Spurgeon says, never lose heart in the power of the gospel. Do not believe that there exists any man, much less any race of men, for whom the gospel is not fitted. Anybody. I used to feel so guilty about ministering to homeless people on the, in our community uh, that if, what can I do? All I can do is give them a gospel. Or, you know, I, sometimes we go, we put them up in a hotel, and we pay for them to go in a hotel, and we try to get them some food, and you follow up with them. And before you know it, nothing, you know, it doesn't seem like anything's materialized. Um, all of a sudden, I was like, wait a second. I got the power of the gospel here. If this person gets saved, guess what? Their life can be transformed. You know, we have people in this church right now that used to live on the streets. They were homeless, but they got saved, and now they're, in, they're walking with Christ, and the Lord is prospering them. And so just by going out and sharing the gospel, um, we can see amazing things happen and change. Uh, set a realistic goal for yourself. Uh, you should not feel like, well, I've got to do Pastor Mike's goal. I've got to do geocaching for Jesus, or I've got to do the 133 houses. I'll tell you what, we're all, the Great Commission is a team sport, right? Some of us, our main, our main role is to pray. Um, I go out, I do some evangelism with my buddy Alan down here, and he does a, he's, does a bang-up job passing out tracks and stuff. But one of his main ministries to me is he prays. We start walking to a particular location, he starts praying, and I just start getting pumped, right? He prays, and I'm like, I can feel the juice. Like, I'm like ready to go preach, Right? But that's happening partially because he's praying, he's praying for me. And then when we're when we go out, we do evangelism. You know, sometimes we'll get in this conversation and it's just crazy. And I look over at him and there's just this big smile. It's like, man, that was something else. I was like, you were praying, right? Yeah. You know, that's it's just sometimes it's praying. There's people in this church that you I couldn't say their names because you they would be embarrassed, wouldn't want you to know who will just walk up and they'll just give hundreds of dollars to missions or to the youth group. Uh, we had a visiting missionary that they just came up and just gave like several hundred dollar bills just to help this missionary. There's people that that's the way that they're participating in the team sport. And then lastly, get some training and tools. So I don't really have time to go into all these, these training and tools, although I'm, I'm going to have to a little bit. I'm sorry, they can deduct it out of my salary. I'm really... Uh, gonna i'm getting to my drop dead time here um but so a couple just one thing uh ucr outreach if you guys could really think about this be praying about this even if some of you guys want to think about taking the time off from work uh the langley's they've got it on the calendar september 25th 26th it's a wednesday and thursday going to ucr outreach uh they will do they normally do some training beforehand and um, and then if you want to take the time off or you can even come in before or after work to go out to UCR when they have their open students time and just do some evangelism. Some people show up, they just pray. Some people come along and they just kind of walk alongside. There's lots of ways you can be involved. Even if it's just if, if you're not able to come out, you're at home just praying while you're changing your baby's diapers. That's a way that you can be part of the team. OK, so put that on the calendar. We have some tracks that you can pick up on the way out. I just want to mention a couple of the tracks that I've been using lately. One is uh, the Alvin Davis track. 
this one uh, came off of a podcast. We just kind of put it into a track form. And the way I use this is I just kind of go up and I say, hey, did you get one of uh, Alvin's stories? This is one of my pastors at the church. And uh, the Lord graduated him from Arizona State through a lot of heartbreak. And I'll share a little bit of Alvin's story about how that his, his, uh, his brother was stabbed to death when Alvin was only five years old. His dad died in his mom's arm when Alvin was only nine years old. And Alvin found himself just saying to himself, if, if, if everything's all what it's cracked up to be, if God's so good, why is this happening in my life? Long story short, Alvin did hear the gospel that Jesus Christ from his mom, who, by the way, just turned 99 about four weeks ago. And uh, that's the kind of reaction I get when I share a story. That's why I say that. And uh, so she just turned 99 not too long ago, and she raised him to believe that Jesus Christ really did live a perfect life and that he died on the cross for Alvin. He was raised from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of the father and that you know, if Alvin or any of us would just call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll be saved. And Alvin did believe that message when he was 12 years old. But when he got to Arizona State, he mixed curiosity with a little bit of pride. And he began to go out and kind of do some of the things that college students do. And got himself to where he was playing really good baseball, but feeling miserable. And just knowing that things weren't right. And so I'll go on and I'll share the story about how that Alvin was sitting across the table with an A scout one day and the a scout was trying to talk him into signing this contract and taking the bonus and he looked across at alvin he said alvin you need to sign this contract you need to take this bonus because you will never have a year like you just had at arizona state alvin says why am i getting teared up for alvin (laughs) this isn't even my own story Uh, i've shared it so much so so yeah alvin just looks across and it's like the, come on, I get it. Um, the lights went on. Sorry. Um. Okay, I can do this. So the lights went on, and um, and it was. He said it was just like the Lord just kind of showed up, and he didn't say this out loud, but he was like, "That's not true, because I can play my last year at Arizona State for Jesus rather than myself." So anyway, um, sorry. So he goes off and just gets by himself and um, and just starts confessing to the Lord and repenting of sin. Just crying out to the Lord saying, Lord, you know, I want to play baseball, but I'll do whatever you want me to do. If you don't want me to play baseball, whatever you want to do, it's all about you now. And so he goes back and he just starts playing for Jesus. The next year he gets drafted by the Mariners and he just remembers just being on his knees before games and just saying, this is why I was made. This is why I was made. And then I'll just take that story and say, why were you made? <clears throat> Are you at a place where you know that you're, you're living your life and you're feeling that sense of fulfillment because this is why you were made? That story is not just for a guy like Alvin Davis. It's for you. If you would call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can see the puzzle pieces come together as well because Jesus Christ is in the business of forgiving sinners. Now, I have to add some of that because um, there's, this is kind of like a stepping stone pamphlet. It's kind of like it gets you to the gospel. That's one thing you could check out. Uh, I won't mention the other ones. There's uh, the Mitsu Fuchida that you could check out. That's an awesome, awesome track. And, and then also Jacob DeShazar. We like to use that one. If uh, I come up, sometimes I give people this one of Alvin because I really like Alvin's. He's such a great looking guy. And when I just kind of go like this, people just want it. They want to take it. But then they, 
<coughs> then they're like, oh, I uh, hablo español. So then I pull out the Spanish one. I say, hablo español un poquito, pero muy mal. Necesito practicar más. So, uh, so, so I can at least give them the Spanish one, right? So, and so just having these things on me makes, it reminds me, right? I don't, when I don't have it on me, I don't think about it. But when it's here and I can feel it in my back pocket, it's like, oh, wow, okay, that's right. I'm here. I'm, I'm ready, to, ready to roll. Not that you have to do that. Again, I, I like talking to strangers rather than people I know. That's more intimidating. Um, invite people to church. So We've we got to wrap it up here. The website is a great way to give sermons. Sometimes I'll just send a sermon to an unbeliever. I've done that recently. If you don't remember anything else, this is the one thing I want you to remember. It's the love of Christ that compels us. You don't remember anything else. The one thing, I, I, I can get overwhelmed. You give me, like, even three things to do, and I start, uh, I start buzzing. I, I don't know what to do. You give me five things to do, and I'm done. I just want to go take a nap, right? You give me one thing to do, I can do that. The one thing I can do is I can get up in the morning and say, Jesus, I need you, and I need to know that you love me. I can do that. And when I do that, things bubble up and other things start happening. That's the design of the gospel. So don't do anything else, but just sit at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, I need to know that you love me. Let's get in the word. Let's pray. <clears throat> and things, the Lord this will start doing things. Evangelism, Great Commission, it's a team sport. You're not called to do everything I'm called to do. I'm called to equip you, our pastors, we're supposed to be third galley slaves rowing hard on your behalf so that you can win. Jesus Christ is our captain. Guess what? We get judged on the basis of the statistics on the back of his baseball card, not ours. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you get judged on the basis of his stats. He's the all-star. He's the advocate. You go to heaven because of him. If you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today, then you'll be judged on the basis of your own statistics, and you will not make it. But if you believe in Jesus Christ, guess what? You go to heaven and God looks, oh, okay, you didn't do so well, but let's look at the all-star. Whoa, he's perfect. Come on in. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity for us to be together. We pray, God, that you would help us to, uh, to just love you. And we love you because you first loved us. So help us to drink deeply of your love for us. It's the love of Christ that compels us. That if one died... He died for all, and now we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for you. But what gives us the energy to go out and fulfill this mission is knowing that we see you and we worship you, and you come to us in our doubts, and you speak things into being. We thank you, Lord, that you promise to be with us even to the end of the age. You have all authority. And so when you tell us to go make disciples, baptizing, teaching, we can do this. Uh, because you are on our team and we are not adding anything to your righteousness. We are just coming in full of your righteousness. It is your love that compels us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.